Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. Francesca Wallace is my guest on this particular episode. She's the Director of Digital Strategy and E-Commerce Prestige at Vogue Australia. So in other words, she heads up the digital strategy and content for Vogue, Vogue Leading and GQ Australia. Pretty exciting stuff, right? We discuss her journey, how she got into her career, what that world looks like, how the evolution of digital is a constant challenge, and ultimately, how she consumes fashion herself. If you're interested in the world of magazines, digital publishing, lifestyle journalism, and of course, fashion, then most certainly this is the podcast for you. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for being the sponsor of this podcast, and in fact, the whole entire series right from the very beginning. I wouldn't be able to have done this without them. So thank you so much, Coordinate Group in Canberra. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Francesca Wallace on Behind the Bio. Hey Francesca, how are you going? Good, I'm good, how are you? Good, good. I'm so glad we could chat. Um, Now, we've got to clear the deck here and let the listeners know that I, in fact, recently just DJed for your wedding. <laughs> yes, so again, congratulations. Thank you. How long ago was that? A couple of weeks? It's been two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks, Or yeah. now, coming up to three on Friday. Wow. Yeah. Old hat. I know. <laughs> Married forever. Feels like forever. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so much fun. I Again, thank you for having me play. I know that that kind of happened through connections, but yeah. I think I called you up and I'm like, whatever you've organized, we can work around it. Because no, I, I knew this it. was going to be a lot of fun. And it was. I'm so glad we made it work as well. Yeah. When, yeah. Um, when you were recommended, I thought, yeah, I have to do it. I have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Find a way. <laughs> yeah. So it's lovely being in your home uh, of newlyweds. And I was saying just because I think, are we six months, so Emily and I? Yes, we probably are. So we're a little bit in, in ahead of you. I'll let you know if anything changes, but that's fine. It's amazing. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I know. I feel like it was all bliss and then I went back to work and now I'm like, oh, okay. I need another holiday. Well, that's what the honeymoon's for, I suppose. Yeah. And we do have Christmas coming up. So <laughs> yeah, maybe. exactly. Exactly. Okay. There's actually quite a lot to look forward to. It's a good time. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Um, But the reason that I wanted to say that too is because I'm sure at some point of the podcast, I'll probably say something about that event and the friends that you've got and perhaps the life that you've got. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, you obviously chose to do that in Canberra and the fact that you did it in a location, which I don't know how many weddings they see, but I have to tell you that out of all the ones that I've been to or played at or had something to do with... Mm. There's those only one other one that I know of in that particular location really? of Albert Hall. That's so interesting because yeah. I, I really did – I Googled and I tried to find if anyone had had a wedding there purely for logistical reasons because yep. I just wanted to see how they'd done it and I couldn't find anything. I found one – a couple of random pictures online somewhere on a blog but they were like really small and low res and I was sort of confused that more people hadn't have done weddings there because it was great. I, I don't know exactly and I don't know – why? Well, I could, I could probably do a hypothesis on, on that, but yeah. you clearly just went, this is, this is great. This has got yeah. a particular atmosphere to it. And it is, it's a very special space. Well, and I think maybe a lot of people in Canberra, because when I mentioned we were getting married at Albert Hall, I think a lot of people thought of it as a very corporate, you know, you go there and there's like a fair or like a, a corporate Rug event sale. or yeah, exactly. Something that doesn't feel very exciting. Whereas I came in with fresh eyes and just saw the bones of it and thought, this, this is, is a really beautiful building. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I I was trying to find old buildings in Canberra, which is hard. <laughs> so it was one of the top places that came up. That is, that's definitely that's in the top 
yeah. top 10 of, of all the places in Canberra, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, especially ones that you could actually use for a wedding. Totally, exactly. Yeah. And luckily, I mean, you can rent it out. It's very easy to rent out. You have to bring everything in, which is a bit of a hassle, but yeah. it all worked out. In it the did. End. <laughs> it's fantastic. You got great weather, all the rest I of know. it. I know. God, we got lucky. So where I'm kind of leading with this too, I just want to ask why Canberra? I mean, has is mm. tell me about your background because you've been away from Canberra for quite some time and returned more recently. Is that correct? No, no. So uh, both Jordan, my husband, and I were born in Sydney, lived and grew up in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a bit of time in New York as a teenager as yep. well um, and then always back in Sydney. Then uni in Bathurst, that's where we met. Yep. Um, and then back to Sydney for work, you know, travelling a lot, going all around the world as well for work, which has been great. And then um, Jordan got a job here with the university. Oh, yeah. see, for some reason, I was under the impression that you've, at some point of your life, had some time here, no. but you've not had. We've okay. visited a lot, though. Like, right. we love Canberra, and we always have. It's been quite funny, actually, because, I mean, Jordan's in politics, essentially, mm. um, so we've always kind of had an affinity for it, and I've always been really interested in politics. And we've, funnily enough, just got a lot of friends that live here. So we've, I mean, obviously doing journalism at uni, mm. you meet a lot of people who end up in Canberra. Yep. So we do know a lot of people here, but even people unrelated to the public service or you know, media live here that are friends of ours. So it's ended up being kind of a little bit of a, you know, we've got a lot of friends in Melbourne and surprisingly just as many in Canberra. So we've come down a lot and I've been here for work quite a bit. I've come down for Design Canberra. I've come down for Mm -hmm. back when it was Hotel Hotel, used to come down for that a little bit as well when they used to have events. Um, Been down with, you know, various brands really. So yeah, we're kind of, we've always been Canberra fans. And it must have felt right. So do you think if it wasn't for the job, I mean, well, maybe I don't know how to ask this question, but how much was the fact that it's Canberra kind of important in the decision to be here as opposed to just the job? You know, some people follow. totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I know what you mean. I mean, from Jordan's work perspective, it was he, this was end goal for us. Like we always knew we'd move to Canberra at some point, I think. Because of what because the career of what he does. Is. Yeah, okay, of because course. of the opportunities for him. Um, I mean, we were joking that it was going to be, it would be Europe or Canberra and it ended up being Canberra. Yeah. Um, but there's still time for Europe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> never say never. Um, but no, I think we kind of always, Canberra as a location was always appealing because of what Jordan does and because we have a lot of friends here. And then because of COVID, I essentially had the flexibility to move in a way that I hadn't, you know, wouldn't have been able to beforehand either. So then we kind of thought, what's stopping us like at this point? And then basically this job came up and it was too good to turn down hmm. so it, it kind of all the worlds just collided into this sort of perfect storm yeah but it's nice yeah. that you've had experiences here mm. and enjoy them and I actually love it. Thought, yeah. well, this kind of fits our vibe totally yeah. and it does actually and i mean everyone jokes about i've just become this unofficial canberra ambassador but i'm really more than happy to take on that role mm. and if the uh, act government wants to pay me for it i will <laughs> gladly accept um, but i think we just both I don't know. We just like a vibe. Like we both, I mean, I grew up in the, the inner west of Sydney. I, I'm used to bustling cities. I lived, mm. in, lived in Sydney, New York, and done a small stint in Berlin as well. So I've only ever really known big cities except for our moment, our three years in Bathurst. And I think it's just we love being out, you know, like I think, I don't know how to explain it, but like the country, I could have easily grown up in the country and loved that as yeah. well. So it's sort of the perfect mix of both those things. A lot of people say that. Yeah, yeah. And we've got, I mean, where we live in Canberra, you know, we live in the inner south. It's not, 
I, I feel like there's, it's got everything we need there as well. And the fact there's so many good places to eat mm. and drink and it's kind of got all of that, which is really important to us. But then, I mean, I just went for a walk before and I saw cows. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> like, down there, right? Yeah, yes. I kind yeah. of love that. Like you don't get that anywhere else. And I also feel like we're both back in Sydney quite a lot because of work and family and mm. friends and sort of the best of both worlds. Like I get to go when I'm in Sydney to the beach and to, you know, wherever I want to eat or see whoever I want to see. And then I come back here and it's sort of peaceful and lovely. Mm. So, you know, I wish it was a two-hour drive and not a three-hour drive, but yeah. it's doable. It's yeah, fine. It is. I'm a regular on the Murrays now. When I check on, it says, what is it? It says like. Oh, so um, you're getting discounts now. Uh, yeah, it and says like regular user or frequent, you know, like a frequent welcome flyer. <laughs> welcome back. If you keep on doing this, I'll have your name on a seat. Literally, you know it. it will. But I mean, we, we also drive a lot. I haven't had them. I haven't got the Murrays in a while, but I do. I don't mind the Murrays. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's great. And the, um, and I guess it kind of worked out very well for you because in a sense, it's a place of work. It's this exactly midpoint between, mm. you know, the hustle and bustle and the country, somewhere in between. Yeah. And you're connected yeah. to other things, which yeah. is fantastic. And you're right, you know, talking about being an ambassador, paid or not. Yeah. The truth is that Canberrans themselves, uh, you know, over the last 10 years have really changed their own sense of identity and, and have become actually relatively strong ambassadors. Not in a way of like, this is great, everyone should come. <laughs> but rather, when people are bagging on it, they confidently yeah. say, sure, it's not your thing, no problem, totally. but I know why I live there. Mm-hmm. And then in reverse, when it comes to a conversation about it, they can quite easily say what it is about Canberra and articulate what it is, is that essentially is attractive for a lifestyle yeah. at different life stages. Well, so. that's the thing. Yeah. Like when people say, what do you love about it? I really do have a lot to say. Like, it's not like I, and I think you're right. People who live here can list off a number of things. Yeah. I, in general, I think Canberra's a great place to live and yeah. we're really happy to be here. And whether it's for a long time or, you know, I mean, I, I think it will be at least a couple of years, that's mm. for sure. So I'm thrilled to be here and I think we're having a great time and I haven't had a bad meal. I can <laughs> confidently say I haven't had a bad meal. And that's at home as well? That's, oh, at home. Okay, sorry. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, at home too, at home too. I mean, tonight we're pretty lazy. We're just literally making a salad, which it's just hot, you know, just yeah. being like, Lettuce. Yeah, it's, it's good for you. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like that's Does a really weird thing though, to right? eat. Oh, heaps of stuff. <laughs> okay. Tomatoes and avocado. It's not just lettuce. Yeah, okay, it's not yeah. just lettuce. You're going to be like, oh, the Vogue girl, that's really not. Yeah, they cut the lettuce in half. <laughs> yeah. You get one half each. Exactly, and yeah. It's all, that's all we need. It's very minimal. Good lettuce. <laughs> um, talking about Vogue, uh, I'm probably going to work at the, the other way that I usually do, and that is just quickly maybe summarize what it is that you do. My understanding is mm. that you work in the digital and social media space yes. uh, for Vogue. Yep. Now, we have to say Vogue Australia and, and maybe to describe yeah. that to people what the difference between Vogue say in New York is versus yeah. Australia could you kind of talk about that of so course. just so people understand what the differences yeah, yeah, are yeah of course so well my role is digital director so I and I work across Vogue Australia uh, GQ Australia and Vogue Living um, so essentially anything that touches the website whether it be words pictures um, social media, newsletters, mm-hmm. um, paid partnerships or events, all that kind of stuff kind of goes through me and, and in association, my team. So it's a great job. Um, super lucky to have this job. I, I absolutely love it. Um, and the role itself, I mean, with working at Vogue Australia versus the other brands. So essentially Condonast is the parent company for all of the brands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Vogue Australia is a sort of offshoot of 
you know, the, those larger Vogue brands. So we actually, the meeting I have after this, um, which is in about uh, 45 minutes is with the UK. So we're pretty close with the UK, the US, especially those English um, speaking markets. Yeah. Yeah. We sort of work quite closely with them. It's, there's a very global network approach to the way that we do things. So obviously we have a lot of original content, which is localized and mm-hmm. is dependent on, you know, who, who we think resonates with the Australian audience. Yeah. But then we also do a lot of content sharing with the West, with the, <laughs> totally stumbled there with the rest of the world yeah. um, to, you know, get access and things that we wouldn't be able to get So it's on almost like saying people buy Vogue for a mixture in part of the influence that comes from the world mm. and the true notion of what Vogue is. Yeah. And ultimately then a relevance of that or interpretation of that to what's happening in Australia. Yes. And, and what consumers are getting are yeah. a good blend of that. And that's what yeah. makes it Vogue. Australia. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, it really is just a, a real mix, a global lens, but mm. a, a, well, I should say a global outlook with a local lens, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, a good example might be, oddly enough, the thing we're describing. So our, our paths have crossed in the past when I was working yes. at the NGA on the yeah, Cartier yeah. exhibition <laughs> and Vogue were a partner in that. So we created editorial specifically around mm-hmm. clearly Cartier and yes. the pieces that were worn by all sort of famous people, which I won't go through right now, including Grace Kelly. But um, I got a bit of a glimpse into your world, which I think was was absolutely great. But that was a very good example of Cartier was only an exhibition in Australia and the NGA. Mm. Therefore, that was local content for Vogue Australia. Yes, um, it exactly. didn't go any further yep. because there'd be no point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a wonderful exhibition. That was a really special thing mm. to be a part of. And I think really fantastic for our brand to be involved as well. So, yeah, that was great. And exactly, yeah, it's not relevant to other people necessarily. And it's the same goes with exhibitions or events things that are happening overseas we don't cover those because no one really cares (laughs) and we should probably say that i don't i don't we've probably forgotten both you and i but there is no way we wouldn't have met or at least conversed during that time it's impossible because we would have half of it was digital yeah and you would have had to talk to me so i was ahead of marketing calls but there we go 100 percent. i know i can't believe that (laughs) I mean, there were a lot of people there. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, I know, I know. It was a long time ago. It was. I actually, a photo popped off on my phone the other day randomly, actually, from that event. I was mm. there with a friend of mine, um, Izzy, who now lives in London, and she and I are standing in front of, it's in the sculpture garden, like right yes. where we got married almost, and there's this photo of Izzy and I, and I was like, wow, God, I've really come full circle. Like, I never thought standing, you know, there was that, that cocktail party there mm. and it was just um yeah it's crazy do you remember strange. the um because you were there for the opening clearly right i was yeah. so you know the the design of the whole entire thing where yeah. we got all those disco yeah. balls in yeah which i did so just <laughs> as a bit of fun thing for you that used up every single disco ball that i could oh. hire in canberra like no there was way. none left so i had to do it from three different suppliers actually. there were a lot of disco balls well because we created <laughs> essentially what i wanted to do is create a chandelier but out of wow. essentially real size disco balls well, that one in the middle was like five meters across it was, it was massive. massive it came in yeah. on a crane but it was it was intense but just just great oh, so much goodness. fun doing that that particular show yeah i bet yeah, um that's a great event so understanding all of that do you think you could do that job without being really into fashion and editorial and content in other words could you imagine somebody working in that purely from a digital savvy perspective yeah but without the passion on the interior oh. kind of knowledge about design uh, fashion i don't think so i think it's a kind of place like 
I mean, my team always say this, especially when we're we're looking for new people or we're hiring. At the end of the day, if you enjoy the content and you enjoy the industry, the rest can be taught. You okay. know, I think when I'm when I'm hiring, especially, that's one of the most important things to me is if they have passion and drive for the general world in which we, you know, orbit. Um, the rest can really come. So, I mean, in some instances, yes, there are roles on my team, especially that, you know, you, you could do from a technical perspective. Yeah. But I think the way that we prefer to do things is to have a real interest. And I think personally in my job, I think you need that understanding of it as well, the nuance that comes with yeah. sort of the industry, especially when you're approving, you know, saying yes or no to things or making calls in regards to how to cover a story or, you know, what, what is appropriate to post on social media during a particular moment, you know, like there's so many things that happen in the world and especially online. It's a very, it's a very volatile place. I think you have to understand what world it is you're operating in mm. and make decisions based on that. So I would say it is probably quite essential. Yeah. Um, you could do it. You probably, there would, I'm sure that someone could do a good job of it, but I think it just makes it, easier and more enjoyable. I was just about to say. There's yeah. so much. I mean, part of – every time I go back to Sydney, a big part of my job is going out to events and, you know, attending things and representing the brand. And if you're not actually interested in what you're doing there, I, that would get old pretty quickly, I think. I'll get you. I mean, when I was working at the NGA, same thing. Like, you could put somebody working in the space of cultural marketing mm. that isn't particularly interested in that cultural thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. Let's pick something from me. Uh, never particularly been into dance, right? Uh, ballet and so forth. I, I just don't understand it the way that other people do. Yeah. Could I market it? Sure, would I enjoy doing that? Probably. Mm. But then you put someone in who does understand dance and what it means and can really understand the way that audiences interact with mm. it and what makes something better or worse. The whole entire thing, history, Just changes everything. all of a sudden, they're going to be a much better marketer than I am because yeah. they'll have that insight. So I think I completely get it. Mm. And the reason that I asked that question is how did that happen for you? So have you always been interested in that kind of fashion and culture mm. and the digital experience and professionalism that you now have? Was that something you added in because you're also interested in it and they blended together? Mm. What came first? Yeah. How did this happen for you? I mean, that's a good question because I, I think it, it's really interesting because I loved, especially growing up, I mean, I loved magazines. I always read them from cover to cover, the newsagent knew me, <laughs> you know, I would be this like, this is not yeah. a library. Yeah, exactly. I would be seven or eight years old reading total girl or whatever it was, K zone, all those magazines in the news, <laughs> in the newsagent. Um, so I always loved magazines and I guess I didn't really know that that was even a job you could have. Um, but then I was very good at writing and I got told, you know, you should be a writer. And then my dad's friend of a friend knew someone at, at the time it was ACP magazines and they got me, a work experience when I was in year 11, maybe. Uh -huh. um, so I spent a few days, I think it was at Cosmo, Cosmo or Dolly. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> right, okay. yeah. It was so much fun though. I had sure. the best time and I just thought, wow, I can't believe this is a career. Yes, of course I want to do this. This is before magazines started to take a hit, right? Yeah, yeah. this this would have been, yeah, that, that would have been in like 2008. Mm. No, no, not eight. Sorry, 2009, yeah. late 2009 maybe. Yep. It was just after I got back from the US. Um, and so, 
that kind of, I mean, I'd always wanted to sort of, I was interested in writing and journalism before that experience, but that sort of got me into uni, which was, I wanted to do journalism. And at the time, <laughs> Charles Stowe University in Bathurst was the best for journalism. And I just thought it would be a fun adventure. And my dad went there as well. So there was a lot of reasons to go. Um, and while I was there, essentially they, and I, I say this with love because I really did have, I had the best teachers there, but they just said, what are you doing? You don't want to do magazines. Like, that's a silly, you know, you want to do, you got to do TV, you got to do radio. Like, even print journalism was, they were just trying to hammer that out of us. So I think I was encouraged. So because was, they, because they knew what was coming, or, or did they think of it a lesser, I think lesser it was thing. lifestyle journalism was not promoted at mm. uni. That was not something that was like really done. I remember this one assignment we had, which was this big, it was called the simulation where you had to produce a daily newspaper over two weeks. It was this really intense um, sort of immersive final project that we did. And I remember I did the week on the weekends, I made the magazine for the, for the newspaper and I had the best time. I've made this magazine from cover to cover <laughs> and wrote all these fake stories about, you know, celebrity interviews. And <laughs> there was a fashion page and a beauty tips and all these things. And looking back, it should have been enough of a, you know, probably a bit of a giveaway that I, that I wanted to do that more mm. than what I wanted, that I wanted to do the hard news. But I think, yeah, just being there, it wasn't encouraged. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't really the done thing. And everyone I met there was doing, they all wanted to be, you know, presenting on Channel sure. 9 or they wanted to be writing for the Herald yeah, or the Australian. Yeah. yeah. So I think for me, it just, I don't know, it just sort of naturally. And then I became really interested in those things and I became, okay, what if I want to, I want to be investigating, you know, doing investigations. I want to be breaking news. I want to be, you know, in Canberra even like there was, you know, that element of like, maybe I want to do politics. I was super interested in politics. I, um, especially my third year got quite involved with student politics on campus. So I think it just became something that I just thought of as a bit of a pipe dream. I didn't know anyone in the industry either. And I was continually told, you need to know someone yeah. to get in. So that all yeah. just sort of, it, I guess it just fell away. So probably in answer to your question, in a very roundabout way of saying mm. what came first, I think the passion was always there. I've always been really interested in fashion. Um, it always, sounds like the skills in writing and yeah. comms were underpinning everything. There. Exactly, yeah. Like there was definitely a personal, in one lane, there was the personal interest in fashion ever since I've remembered. You know, mm. I used to read I used to buy Vogue International, you know, editions and get them delivered to my house at great cost and, you know, various sort of read sure. you know, style.com when it was style.com and just all read, you know, Women's Wear Daily and fashion blogs. Like I remember when Susie Bubble and Tommy Ton and like the, um, what's his name, the Satorialist was sort of just starting oh, out. Yeah, like yes. all of that. I was, I was devouring all of that information um, and I loved it. And then on the other hand, in the other lane, I've got my sort of, yeah, professional career as a journalist and a writer was beginning. Um, and then I suppose the two just <laughs> collided one day, um, literally, and I realised that, oh, I could maybe actually do both of those things. Mm. So, but it wasn't something I set out to plan to do. I definitely, when I graduated uni, my, um, I'd, I'd been working at the, the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney, um, for, a few months as a casual and then they offered me sort of, you know, more ongoing work after I finished basically. So that's where I kind of thought I would end up and mm. I thought I would end up doing, you know, quite hard hitting news and 
it just didn't work. It, yeah, I got the job at Vogue then. I think it was after 11 months or so at the Herald. Um, and then, yeah. Have was the job really at Vogue already more or less what you're doing or a different job and you moved no, up into No, very, very different. I mean, I was, yeah, literally like a year out of uni when okay. I got the job. So what, what was the job? It's just a really entry-level producer role. So I was, okay. um, yeah, it was full-time though, which is honestly the reason why I chose it over the Herald. Like I think I'd, I'd given up on the idea of working in fashion. I, you know, had been drilled into me for so many years that you got to do it's the hard news. Happen. It's not going to happen. Like this is more you important. Don't know the people. Exactly. Yeah. And I just thought, no, that's not going to happen. And I really focused my energy into, you know, working for Fairfax. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden, yeah, that changed and I had to make a decision and I thought, well, at that, that, that point, honestly, it was a financial thing because the Herald was just still a casual thing and then yeah. Vogue was giving me five days a week and I thought, mm. well, I'll take the five days. I mean, I obviously also was a great job and I was super, like, super thrilled to be working there, but it was also a bit like, well, this one's going to be, like, yeah. more permanent by the looks of it. Um, and at the time, Fairfax were going through a lot of strikes, a lot of redundancies. It wasn't exactly... Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it was pretty volatile time um, and I was also a bit unsure about you know where I what I should do I was fresh out of uni I was mm. like I don't know if I'm you know I didn't know that many people so I think it was definitely a thing of like okay Vogue's got you know there's all these young people it's filled with you know people who have really similar interests to me yeah. it's just felt like the right decision and god I'm glad I did it for so. sure <laughs> yeah. so that so how long was it from the moment as your producer role yeah. to where you are now how, how many years we're talking about that? um I think I've been at the company I also interned at Vogue while I was working at Fairfax I should have mentioned that sorry mm-hmm. that was like while I was working a couple of days away for Fairfax I was doing like a day at Vogue interning and that's how I got this job in the first place so from the moment I was interning which is only a couple of months to the moment I got the job that was like 2015 when I first at the end of 2015 oh, when yeah. I started interning so I would be going into the eighth year um but still, that's still a great rise though within one company mm. to to the level that you're at yeah I mean that's, I think it's a credit to Edwina my editor my boss she's who I managed to meet yes, in that meeting. Met, yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure she remembers me, yeah. I'm sure she does. I'm sure she does. Uh-huh. It, um, it, she is incredible at fostering talent, basically. I mean, it, I think it's interesting. When you jump around a lot and you go to a, diff- a lot of different places, you get a lot out of that in a totally different way. But when you stay at one place, and I do think that Vogue, who is, is licensed by News Corp locally, they really – to try and promote internally there's a real culture of trying to foster that you know getting you know someone who started at the business mm-hmm. and then you know years later them ending up in a senior leadership role I mean even like there's so many people that I work with who are, who has did exactly that so I think that was it's a cultural well, I guess thing if they see talent yeah. they know it and then they cherish it I yeah guess, exactly and I found I mean I found myself really supported there and I'm yeah. very very lucky so yeah it's been it is quite amazing to think back that I literally started as an intern and no it is and eight years yeah. that's that's great mm. so I've got two questions uh just just for context I also would presume, tell me if I'm wrong, but the Vogue team per se, we're not talking large numbers of people here at all, right? No, well, it's really grown. I mean, it's interesting. There's obviously a split between print and digital, which is less and less these days. It's really quite, um, it's quite, you know, we all help with everything. We're all across everything. Um, But I mean, when I started, there were four people on the digital team and Mm -hmm. now I think there's 20. Oh, okay, right, yeah. But that's, um, still, that's still the small numbers I'm exactly, talking about. Exactly, yeah. yeah no, compared like to like a newspaper team, yeah. or, yeah, so there's about 20 of us on digital and then 
probably the same amount on on print really i think um, that gives people a really good indication yeah of the so yeah. it's it's a small team but we do a lot and because we work across the multiple brands as well there's there's gq there's vogue living um we also you know in parts of the australian now we help out with the lifestyle section and the travel section so there's definitely a lot going on um but it's a yeah really small but mighty and very powerful little team yeah and the reason that i say that is you know, a lot of people think of large organizations and the opportunities that are in them. In, in, in other words, we assume that the bigger organization is the more opportunities yeah. and pathways there are. But in fact, depending on the culture and management of an organization that's smaller and, you know, really 80 people or whatever mm. else, it's, that's not very big at all. Uh, it, there's still opportunities, especially if yeah. they see talent and they, and they nurture it the way they have here. Yeah. So when the other question was, when you started off in that eight years, the knowledge around digital mm. in order to get the expertise that you've got mm. now, was that, did it come somewhat naturally? Because you must have been kind of riding the evolution of digital, which is constantly going oh, by 100%, the way. Yeah. yeah so it was very much that. on the job. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. So when you came into the producer role, was that producer of digital content yeah, already? Yeah. Okay. So you kicked it off was, in that yeah. space. I mean, but I wasn't in any means an expert at that point. I was, <laughs> <laughs> was definitely, um, definitely learning. I think with digital, you're right, it's been, I mean, it's so ever-changing and it's constantly evolving and there's always things to learn. But I was lucky enough to come in at a time that I think I rode the, the wave and the girls that I worked with at that time, we were all kind of in this, like like another girl was hired at the same time as me. The team was two people before me and this other girl were hired. So we expand, we doubled <laughs> essentially and it just all of a sudden became, you know, digital was a bit of a focus and then it was, you know, we hired a few more people and then it becomes, you know, like it's sort of you all of a sudden get put into this situation where you have to learn things very quickly and seek out the right people in the business to teach you those things because the traditional power structures didn't know those things basically. So, and I find that, I mean, today our business is very well set up for digital and it's much easier to find who you need and there's a much more, you know, centralised way of working with digital, you know, product or um marketing it like all all elements design everything like that is actually quite central but at the time it really was like we would literally watch youtube videos sometimes to try and figure stuff out of course um and we'd pick the brains of any kind of expert that came within our realm so yeah it's been a definite sort of trial by process i suppose Mm. and just continually learning and every i mean every year i feel like my brain is expanding with more and more like this year has been the year of tiktok (laughs) like there's always something (laughs) that year of tiktok and last year was a year of seo and Mm. an algorithm so it's it always changes but there's always something to learn and there's always like there's always amazing people there to teach you. You just have to seek them out and ask the right questions. The reason I'm also saying this too is we have this uh, misconception that people who are digital natives of the age that they are and those who aren't, those who aren't are resistant to change mm-hmm. because it's all too hard. Mm-hmm. And there's this presumption that those who are digital natives already kind of know everything and they're just in that world. Yeah. And I would say that's actually not true. No, uh, you have to Because learn, it's yeah. constantly changing, even those who are digital natives, yes, they must have got a head start, fair enough, because mm. they're in that world from, from the very beginning. But they're learning things which are constantly changing yeah. too. I mean, TikTok's not a bad example. And yes, you have to understand what social media is, really in context but Mm. that came out of left field and Mm. to understand why it's working and all the rest of that 
that's that's a changing field and any of us can pick that up even if we're not native so that's the thing i i agree with you 100 percent there it's definitely it's an attitude thing it's not actually an experience thing i i mean obviously if you've cut yourself or shut yourself off for so long from learning things and then all of a sudden you think you have to learn a hundred things at once that's makes it a lot harder (laughs) but it's more those people who are just open and willing to do things as they come and you don't have to be an expert at everything i mean i'm no expert at a number of things you know that i technically you know head up or lead but i make sure that there's someone on the team who does know what they're doing and it all it takes is just you know sitting with someone who knows how to use it and them showing you and you just kind of being willing to practice until you get it right and sometimes that's only once or twice you need to do it sometimes it means you have to try a bit harder it's going to take a bit longer but at the end of the day it makes you a better more employable you know it's i think in this day and age it's just silly to me to think that people don't want to be also i just think it makes you kind of relevant and kind of interesting like if you know things about the world that's always better than not right (laughs) Uh, look i I agree (laughs) the least eloquent way to put that but you know what i mean (laughs) what's the um what was the most challenging but if i think of you know your your last eight years at, at vogue in terms of the things you had to learn the challenges that come from, you know, changing landscape, yeah. uh, even the changing landscape of media in itself, yeah. e- everything, right? Yeah. What was the most challenging thing on a personal level? Uh, I mean, to give you an example, this is going to be the most boring example, but <laughs> I- I- if I think even of my work at the university, I had to, I, well, for the work that I was doing, I had to kind of go really deep into understanding what IT or DITM or yes. all that kind yeah. of stuff meant within the university and how it worked in order to be able to affect change. Mm-hmm. It's really not my bag. Yeah. But the good thing about it is that once I got into it and got it, I could speak that language and yeah. then I was able to make change, which ultimately then is really enjoyable and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So if someone said, what was the most difficult part? I'd say actually getting into a, a world which I don't have much experience in, I don't usually kind of revolve in either, mm-hmm. and learning the gears enough so that I could speak the right language and then make change in the right way yeah. and actually make sense. Yeah. It's a very boring example, I know. But no, for you. I, I would say it's similar in all jobs, right? You have to learn something that you didn't know before. And yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, I feel like I've gone through a few different iterations. I think probably the biggest jump for me was probably the leadership jump, like mm. on a personal level, jumping to a position of leadership and being responsible for a team in a way that I'd never been before was definitely a big one. Um, and feeling, you know, the pressure and the weight on your shoulders in which yeah. that, that comes and that follows. That's probably, probably one of the biggest challenges I've had to sort of face. And honestly, really enjoyed it though. I actually really love I mean, maybe it's just that my team are wonderful and make it very easy. Um, but that's been probably one of the harder things. And I'd say just that also that jump from going from a, a writer or a producer and someone who just works internally to someone who works with external stakeholders yeah. as well, clients and, you know, reframing, you know, what you think of as being a journalist or an editor role. It's not just writing and commissioning stories and doing this or that. It's actually... There's so many other things involved in the the stakeholders that you work with, whether they're internal or external. And I think just like reframing your interactions, I suppose, with those people mm. is is really interesting. And that's probably part of my job that many people don't think about. They just think it's all, I don't know, 
parties and <laughs> free stuff or something. And it's actually not at all those things. I mean, there are a lot of events. Yeah. It's Christmas time at the moment. So there's a lot sure. going on, but that is definitely like 5% of the job compared yeah, to completely. everything else that we do. And there's a lot of hard work behind the scenes. I think anything <laughs> that seems glamorous on the mm. outside, because you don't see the inner workings of it, it's very easy to yeah. assume that's the case. And yeah. we had a bit of a conversation, obviously, before this podcast started about the way things are perceived externally and then yeah. how that really true inner workings yeah. of that stuff is. I mean, even that thing I was talking about, about the silly disco balls, mm. you know, the amount of work that I had to go to actually make sure that that whole entire thing works. You might remember we had a, a particular guest at that um, show, which went very well, but the amount of management you're doing yeah. with very limited resources, nobody yeah. sees that. What oh, they see is whether an yeah. event is looking good, whether the music is yeah. on, whether the drinks are flowing. I remember during that time, you know, that we ran out of particular champagne and it was embarrassing <laughs> because we had some VIPs and, you know, you're thinking in your feet how to solve yeah. that situation. And we yeah. did. And nobody saw that. Yes. But on the inside, there's a lot of pressure. Oh, I, I definitely. Yeah. I mean, that just sums it up, doesn't it? You just... It's like the duck paddling under the water. <laughs> That's exactly and what my you, boss used to yeah, say. Yeah, you, you feel like the, the, the front half and the top half is all smooth sailing and then... Mm. And the rats is a bit frantic, but no, I, I agree. It's it's it takes a lot, and I think our team, especially, there are a lot of roles that people don't probably wouldn't even know existed that are yeah. so important to making everything happen. And there are people on the team who do just so much and give so much of their life and their passion, and it just shows in the end product. You know, when you pick up that print product or you're reading something online or even just seeing a social post you know that's all there are people behind that behind that and Mm -hmm. i think uh, especially a brand as big as the brands that i work for people forget that and you know we do get obviously yes sometimes we make mistakes and you know things get picked up or whatever or we get bad comments and it's like it's actually a person behind that as well like Mm -hmm. we are just people at the end of the day and we're just trying our hardest i find that some analogy to movies actually oddly correct in that you know we watch a film on netflix or whatever else Mm. it's in front of us we watch it we make a judgment on whether we like it or not yeah and we always skip the end where the credits roll but if you leave that on and you realize how long the credits are going for you actually realize how much effort and how many people doing all sort of things it takes to make that movie definitely and we see it as a singular vision and Mm. a single product we can then judge enjoy or not yeah but there is so much going on behind that I i think anything that's front facing like that and of course vogue being in a communications medium and mm. other things like that fall into exactly the same category yeah. so you know yeah and it, it's a tough one to navigate sometimes because you just want to shake them and be like to the anonymous you know commenter on instagram you're like this was <laughs> we had this reason or we did this and it's like you can't say okay. that obviously yes. like, gotta relax um but yeah we're very lucky i mean it's i i feel incredibly lucky the brands yeah. are amazing and they give have have given me so many opportunities that I would never have had otherwise. So you spoke earlier about the fact that when you were younger, you used to go to the local uh, newsagent and almost get kicked out for using it as a library. Obviously you spent a lot of time immersing yourself in it for all the enjoyment of all the things that you were doing specifically to with fashion and other things. Yeah. Do you still get to do that? I mean, clearly you're working Mm. in it. So given, yes, but what about, the other side. Do, do you still have the equivalent of those library sessions, so to yeah. speak? Do you consume fashion the way you used to, and does it still give you the same pleasure? Like, in other words, do you have time to even do it? Yeah, that's the, probably the key one. I would yeah. do it more if I could. I find planes are the my. That's my <laughs> honestly. It's like because Wi-Fi drops out. So. Exactly. There's no internet. Mm. 
it's perfect. Even if there is Wi-Fi, I often choose not to connect because I'm like, this is history. You know, I like the idea of the plane as being this pure non-Wi-Fi. There's no internet. No one can contact me. And I love reading a book or a magazine on a plane or listening even to a podcast, which I don't often have time to do during the week. Um, but no, I do still love printed products. So okay. like even just... Uh, I can show you after it's just over there. When I was in New York recently, I bought a whole lot of magazines because I just, they have the best selection over there and they're also cheap. And I just, I think half my suitcase was filled with magazines and I bought them home. And the other weekend, I had a weekend here where I was just relaxing and I just read cover to cover like a whole lot of amazing publications that I like, I think I do that. I probably do that a few times a year where I just binge them almost. Like, I feel like I don't do it. I mean, I obviously read our magazines, but in terms of getting that kind of inspirational hit from a whole lot of different brands that I don't, you know, usually have the day to day time for. Cause when I'm reading during the week, it's usually books, like fiction books and mm-hmm. stuff, not sort of, I feel like that you've got to be in a different mindset to sort of be looking at pictures yep. and feeling inspired and reading about things that are really creative. Um, but I, yeah, I do that a couple of times. A year where I just sit down and I'll literally spend an Almost entire day. Yeah, yeah. I, and I do. I feel. I mean, you can ask Jordan. I come out of that, and I'm always. I've bookmarked all these pages. Or I've ripped out pages, and I want to stick them up on the walls. And he's like, "You can't just put up these pages all over the house." I'm like, "Oh, I wish I could." Um, but it's great. Like that's yeah. definitely the. So you still find time for it. It's I just do. a bit more yeah. limited and exactly. a little bit more specialized. And it's funny because I look at it now through such a different lens. But when I have sit down have those days and those sessions i almost feel like i revert back to what like i try not to think about oh that production looks like it you know that shoot looks like it was really hard to organize or (laughs) you know oh wow that copy's really long or you know i spot a spelling mistake or there's something where i'm like okay stop working stop working um that's very much i try and just enjoy the pictures and enjoy just I, oh, and I always look at the masthead. I always like to see who's worked on it and what their team looks like and their structure of the team looks like. I find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a bit of work, I suppose, but I, it's more like just an interesting kind yeah. of a passion project. And the reason I'm asking this question is some people believe, and rightfully so, that sometimes when you get into a field that is your passion, working at it automatically mm. somewhat kills it off. You yeah. can imagine, for example, musicians who are free to write whatever they want. They get yeah. signed with a label. Fantastic. Then that label essentially says, well, we want this kind of album from you. It yeah. becomes a job. They get yeah. dismayed by it. And I know mm. people who have worked with that. Oh, the totally, yeah. But, but it doesn't sound like that's happened to you and you still find, likely, but, mm. it, but it also means that you still find ways of recharging that creative yeah. space. For, I think yeah. that every day it's, it's easy to get a bit jaded and it's easy to get a bit you know, over it. Definitely. Like I definitely have my moments when I hear myself talking about things and being like, Oh, that's like, why would I, you know, that's if I heard my, my 10, you know, 10 years ago, self heard what I was saying right now, (laughs) they'd be like, don't be ridiculous. You're complaining about something that's really amazing. Um, but I think overall, yeah, I do. I love it. And I think it makes me love it even more because the more experience I get and the more access that I receive, you know, even just in the role that I'm in now and getting to travel more and, you know, attend fashion week and do things like that, that I wasn't able to do when I first started. I think that gives me now even just an even a greater appreciation for yeah. the industry because I'm seeing it in a way that I'd always dreamed to see it. And now I can actually I can marry those two things up. So it's really special. Yeah. And I think it helps that I'm surrounded by people in the office. Well, when I'm not, not in the Canberra office, but well, 
they're, they're <laughs> wonderful. They're just not into fashion. Um, but, you know, in the Sydney office that feel the same way and when something exciting happens, like a fashion moment, you know, even something as simple as just an incredible show or a moment, you know, even the Mew Mew skirt, like mm-hmm. the that whole thing, it was just even just being able to talk to people about it who understand it and just get it. Yeah. Like they get why that's funny or amazing or controversial or whatever. And you kind of, without talking, you don't have to explain it. You're just like, you just all know that background and then you're just enjoying and or, you know, criticizing or whatever it might be the moment and kind of, you know, enjoying that as a team. So I think having the team definitely makes a difference. And like, that's what's grown my passion even more because I learn things every day from them that I just have no idea about otherwise. Yeah. You actually touched on something that I was going to ask about and that is the way that you consume fashion Mm. because I think, you know, if you say fashion to people, uh, people will have different interpretations of it depending who who they are. Some, it's just a very functional thing. Mm -hmm. This is what I wear. For some, it's a uniform. Some, it's a form of Mm self-expression. Keep on going. For some, it's art. You know, we can can do the whole entire thing here. But, you know, you've, you've mentioned the thing about the skirt, by the way. Oddly enough, I know about it just because you know. I happened, <laughs> happened to read something about this. But um, It was everywhere. It really was. It was, it was. But what I'm getting at is how, it, well, your interpretation of, so for example, when you talk about going to, say, uh, a fashion show or a mm. runway show, what have you, if those of us who aren't in fashion can look at something like that and see it's somewhat absurd. Yeah. And... We don't have the skills or the tools to understand what mm. a designer is trying to say and why it might seem quite silly or ridiculous, but mm. actually it's an expression form that relates to something else and, and what it really means. And no yeah. one's really expecting you to wear that down to the shops. Totally. So that consumption of of fashion, the way that you do it, um, having that kind of lens, I guess what I'm interested in is do you see fashion as a form of art or do you see it as the way that everybody sees it and depending who you're talking to, you will adjust? No, I mean, it, I def- absolutely see it as a form of art, okay. but I agree that who you're talking to, it definitely changes things. I mean, we've got some friends who live just two doors down. I don't think he'll ever listen to this, but Charlie, one of our friends, is just thinks my job is absolutely absurd and some of the things that I do are absolutely <laughs> <Right>. ridiculous. <laughs> And even just the fact that I own a pair of Crocs or, you know, like yeah. the kind of he thinks that's so funny. And his um, partner, Yvette, is similarly as entertained with some of the outfits that I wear and stuff. And I think just they're such good friends of ours but and they have this outside view of what I do. And I, I love that because it's like holding a mirror up to what I do and I understand that it's totally It always ridiculous. makes it quite trivial. Like, it yeah. does, it does. But at the same time, I feel like I'm able to educate them or share things that they might not have thought about before or, you know, give them little insights or okay. bits of, you know, information. Tell me, tell me more about that. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So for those people who might seem that this is all a bit silly and we, we don't have to go super high fashion here yeah, because yeah. I know that's difficult, but I'm trying to think how, how do you do it? How do you explain? Because, I mean, that expression saying, well, it's a form of art. So mm. you think of what is art, art is, is communications in, in a way. Yeah. What is it that, that someone's trying to tell you through fashion? That's what it is. But that's a hard explanation, right? Yeah, I'm trying. What tools? What do you say? Well, I'm trying to think of an, of an example, but I just can't think of one right now. I have a terrible <laughs> memory. Um, I mean, it, it's cliche to use this reference because it's obviously the whole industry is so different to mm. how it is 
portrays it, but in the Devil Wears Prada that, you know, when she talks about the blue and the history classic of the colour blue, such a classic scene. By the way, one of my favourite films, I'll just own oh, this up same, right now. Same, yeah. I know it seems really silly, <laughs> but every time that movie comes on, we, I've, I've seen it a lot of times. Yeah. I enjoy it for so many different levels, but let's not get into oh, that. No, I love it too. Yeah. And honestly, everyone in the office loves it too. It's mm. obviously just completely unrealistic. I wish you could just take things from the cupboard and keep them. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely doesn't happen. Um, but I guess it's just that education thing. Like I'm trying to think of an example, real world example, but there, you know, when a runway show happens as a writer, as an editor, as someone who's interested in fashion, you look at the clothes, you obviously take them at face value and you think, do I like that? Do I not like that? It's just natural. You make an assumption, you make an opinion, you form a, you know, whatever it is. But then the next thing you do is read the notes that have been provided by the brand or you listen to, you know, the interview that you, or you might have, you might be doing that yourself or you might be listening to it. And then you take another look at the clothes and you think, oh, now I can see that reference or I can see this reference. Or if obviously if you can spot a reference of a past work or an artist or, you know, there might be more literal references in the scene setting and the, the sets of the of the shows or, you know, um, Maria Grazia at Dior is very literal in that sense where she might have, you know, a, a set that's got slogan, you know, her famous sort of feminist collections which mm-hmm. have got slogans and words that um, are associated with them and it's quite, that's quite a literal reference, whereas then you might have something like in the Bottega Veneta show recently where he enlisted um, a designer. Her, his name has totally escaped me now, even though I know his work really well, um, to do the chairs, and that was sort of a less literal reference to kind of, you know, the way that the designer kind of ties in the collection with a cultural, a broader cultural yeah. reference. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, and you sort of have to read about that in the show notes afterwards. But I always find that when you start looking at references because they always are they're always inspired by something that's when you sort of sort of start to see what their vision was and that's on a high-end level obviously that's yeah. you know you're talking runways and and collections that can be not very accessible to the normal person but i still think it gives you all of that trickles down like there is no so it's trying to find meaning it's trying to find meaning and the history yeah. in it and the references yeah. And through that understanding what the designer as an artist is trying to tell you through the clothes. Totally. And even I think just having an understanding of the materials and like the significance Mm. of the materials, like even just as a, as a random example that's just come to mind, the um, latest Ferragamo show, which is, was the debut of a new creative director. He used this heat activated material where, so the piece looks different every time you wear it because it depends on your body temperature and like parts of your body. Yeah. It's really. And it's not hyper color either. No, it's exactly. (laughs) It's really cool. And I think, you know, when you start to think about the form and the function of the clothes and also sustainability and what, how designers are telling a story through natural material, you know, um, Stella McCartney and Gabriella Hurst mm-hmm. are just great examples of that. They're very considered with the materials they use and some of the innovations they have. I just think, I mean, there's always more than meets the eye with fashion and even something as simple as, I mean, literally this white T-shirt that I'm wearing, which is designed by Basic um, out of Sydney, you know, that's organic cotton. It's, you know, from Australia. It's made in a, um, you know, a factory in the northern beaches. Like yeah. that, that to me is important because it's, circular and it's to them like they're doing amazing things with sustainability so i think every single piece no matter how simple it it looks 
does have more to it and there is always a reason why people have chosen the clothes they've chosen you always the clothes tell much more about a person than even they choose to realize if like that is a choice not caring that's a choice yeah and that tells a lot about someone even if they're choosing not to <laughs> yeah. no well beautifully said um it's very very true i also think i mean it goes back to what we kind of said that one of the categories within fashion is self-expression or mm. self-identity and ultimately that's what that is but you're doing it for yourself because you believe that the clothes represent what you stand for mm. but also the relationship is that people need to look at you interpret that yeah and that's the interesting thing that happens there definitely you know? and i think it starts a conversation like i mean i have friends and colleagues who wear incredible you know somewhat outlandish maybe experimental clothes yeah. and they always start a conversation and that's such a big part of their mm. identity like the fact that they dress the way they do is intrinsic intrinsically linked to how who they are as a person and, and yeah. how they identify so and clothes are so like that i mean you look at queer communities or you know specific cultural communities and dress and clothing is such a integral part of essentially you know explaining visually without saying a thing if you belong to one of those communities mm. and and that's just one example but there's definitely i think the that is how fashion and clothes can do things that we can almost you can never say you can portray so much about who you are and who you want to be sometimes mm. you know that's also a criticism because people dress in ways that i don't actually reflect you know maybe what they like or who they want to be it's rather that the image that they're trying to portray and I think there's well, a they're whole, trying to fit into a group. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But then, I mean, subcultures, there's a whole other conversation around that. I yeah. think it's fascinating and I love looking, you know, you've got even just in fashion history, the history of punk and, mm. you know, Vivian Westwood tied to punk and, and movements like that and kind of, you know, a designer like Alexander McQueen and how he fits into the zeitgeist and mm. shapes an entire cultural conversation and even, you know, Prada in the kind of minimalism 90s sort of moment. There's just fashion is so linked to the way that we even portray and see history in our own like recent times and also in the you know when you think of the 50s you think of people women wearing full skirts and mm. like that's well that's what i think of but it's sort yeah. of you know that visual you know what do you call it like sort of representation of an era or a moment in time is often very heavily intrinsically linked yeah, it was yeah. so strong that it's repeated over and over exactly, again exactly exactly yeah. so i think you know people underestimate the power of fashion but really it's a very it's a very um it's a very powerful thing yeah. i'm trying to find another word for powerful but yeah it just is <laughs> <laughs> that's it really well, it's intrinsically linked with history and expression and mm. movements and yeah i completely agree which which it goes back to the same thing we were just unpacking about how to understand fashion and yeah. actually it's through history, through references, through the evolution of it. That's yeah. that's that's really, yeah. that's really unlocks it. And I'm no I'm no fashion historian, definitely. Sure. I mean there's people on my team who Jonah, who probably won't listen to this, but if he does, he's just got this incredible... If I little doubt about the amount of people that well, won't listen yeah. to this. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Hi, guys, if you do. Um, Jonah's got this incredible, like, visual catalogue, I want to say, of in his brain of just, like, moments in pop culture history and there's people you know like him that i think keep those moments alive and mm. you know he has a he actually 
has a sort of little video series um, on the Oz, which is um, a, a digital site, yep. with the Kim Bino, Kim Russell, who's an incredible fashion. I want to say she's a fashion historian because she is. She's really amazing. Um, and she's another person that just sort of keeps these collections and these moments fresh in everyone's minds and brings us things, that we, you know, you'd never thought of looking at that way, and now you are. Um, and I think Instagram and social, TikTok and social media has given us that opportunity, yeah. which has been, it's really, um, you know, democratized who can enjoy fashion and everyone can. It's just totally up to you whether or not you sort of look for it. Yeah. Basically. I know we've only got a couple of minutes because you have to jump on a call in a moment. Oh, good. <laughs> but I've got two last things that I want to finish on. Yeah. Um, a pecking order in fashion. I don't know if this is a controversial thing to say or not, but. Can you be into fashion and say, for example, be into H&M and Zara? And is there a pecking order then of moving to, I don't know, Hugo Boss and mm. Paul Smith? And is there a difference between that to then moving to Balenciaga and yeah, Yves Saint Laurent? Is is there this kind of stepping, so to speak, that exists? Or, no. or, or not really, that's not the way to see it. No, I think, um, I think anyone who's truly in fashion will tell you that there's absolutely no right or wrong way and there's you know you could spend thousands and thousands of dollars and my god like people do and they that doesn't give you style like Mm. style is is more than that is more than spending money you know i think some of the most stylish people i know buy all their hands um clothes secondhand Mm. um i personally from more like a environmental perspective i think there are certain brands um you know who i wouldn't purchase just from a from that perspective i'd rather buy something vintage for the same or, reasons why you purchase exactly this yeah. exactly <laughs> so i think it's um you know that's it doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're buying from those brands absolutely mm. not but it's more you know if you had the choice to maybe buy something secondhand that would be my preference yeah. Yeah. and i think that that does make you a little bit more of a it gives you more individual style because you've really sought out that piece but um yeah i think a mix of i mean a lot of what everyone in the office wears is such a mix of high and low and the most fashionable people know i know you know you might have one designer item and then it's paired with six you know vintage pieces or things that you've found from local sellers or you know kind of small businesses and and things like that and there's so many great small businesses and amazing fashion australian fashion designers out there that i think there's really you know no excuse really to be just experimental and playful and it doesn't matter how much it costs i I love that because i think that's a thing you can be fashionable and very much into that without that being judged by the amount of money that you've spent on a top label i I think that's that's what i was trying to get at about the pecking order thing yeah Um, yeah oh god there's um i mean yeah i think you can be incredibly fashionable and again it's it comes back to style and Hmm. you can't you can't buy style really um, the last question actually relates to this, or maybe more of a statement. So mm. going back to your wedding, which we started off yes, on. Yeah. One thing that hit me, and I remember saying this to Emily once I got home, because she goes, how was it? Yeah. You know, And I said, hey, it was great. I spoke quickly about the venue and, and all the rest of that. But I said, you know, one thing that hit me, if you think of fashion types, and I would presume that out of the friends and family that you've had, that there are most mm. certainly people who have been there from Vogue, that you work with, mm. people who are into fashion, people who mm. aren't. I think I could spot the ones that were in yeah. fashion, but yeah. my point here is none of it was over the top. So when, when you think of oh, fashionable people coming, you mm. think everyone's going to be wearing these things that are very overly expressive and, you know, really in your face. Yeah. It wasn't, quite on the contrary, including yourself. It was, I would say, confident, reserved, mm. 
and and actually quite um, classic in many ways. Yeah. And I realized that being fashionable is just much about that kind of confidence mm-hmm. rather than being showy. And actually, maybe that's what definitely. I'm trying to say. I did not say a oh, single definitely. thing of bling and not that kind of very showy fashion thing that a lot of people would think of fashion people being. Yeah. I mean, less is more. Like, that yeah. is a reason. There's a reason why that's a saying. And I think there's, you know, someone who has true style knows that. You know to, when to remove things and to take things, pair things back. And, yeah, again, I think, like, one great piece is better than ten average pieces. Mm-hmm. And it will always make you feel better. And also if you feel good in what you're wearing and you feel confident, I mean, that is the number one thing. It doesn't matter what it is. If you feel good in it, then that's really all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, there, there was most certainly an integration between your guests. And it's not like you would have all called yourself and gone, what are you wearing? Yeah. Th- there, was, there was most certainly a style about your guests in, in most part that I just thought fitted so nicely. And, you know, I was in a, a oh, prime position nice to, to hear, watch yeah, that yeah. too. Well, you were also sitting very close to the uh, the work friends as well. So you probably did have the best dressed people near you. <laughs> yeah, I had lots of fun. There was actually two men that were wearing... Um, Suits like uh, double-breasted suits, oh, but with yeah, no yeah. Oh, whether it was yeah. no t-shirt or no shirt underneath it, I'm not quite sure. But you know, you could see the chest kind of thing, yeah. that open thing, and very no, interesting very shoes. Stylish, yeah. But again, that was such a basic idea, and I was mm. looking at that going clearly very into fashion, right? Yeah. But because it was a statement, almost without being a statement, yeah, it's just those little things again taking off something. And <laughs> 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 literally, like it does make a difference. Yeah. yeah, it's um. I know I love it. I love seeing that stuff, and I love seeing what people wear. I mean, I was at the races actually in um, Victoria. God, that feels like a lifetime ago. It was probably a month mm-hmm. ago, um, and it was fascinating. I love to see what people wear to those kind of you know big days. Like yeah. some people just looked absolutely incredible, and just in these amazing, you know, even the, like people wearing suits or. You know, the, I don't know, there were just so many great outfits. And then there were the people who, you know, you could tell really were trying very hard, but it just didn't quite, there was just too much going on. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's such a wonderful example, a microcosm of fashion is mm. the races, actually. You see a lot of what, you know, what I love and, and some of what we don't. But it's, um, yeah, it's it's quite amazing. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, thought for thought for anyone that's trying to get into it. You don't need a lot of bling. You don't. And it does not have to be the, the high-end stuff either. Absolutely not. You know? It's yeah. about confidence and, and history. And, and self-expression, yeah. Exactly. You know what you like. Don't dress for other people. That's There's nothing worse. Mm. <laughs> well, look, we could we could talk for hours. I've got I know. I'm so many sorry. questions, but you have to I run. I wish and I didn't have to go. This podcast is supposed to be an hour and no longer, so, <laughs> so I think we did quite well. So, again, thanks for your time. I really appreciate you making it. Um, and I'm sure I'll see you somewhere. Yes. Okay. So oh, that was doubt. my conversation yes. with Francesca <laughs> Wallace. I hope you enjoyed <laughs> an insight into her world, her career, her lifestyle, and, of course, her passion for fashion. Actually, I can't believe how nicely that rhymed. If you enjoyed this chat and you think you know someone that possibly might as well, then please let them know. This is exactly how the word about this podcast series spread. And I have to say, it's working because the numbers are growing. And I'd like to say a big thank you right now to all the listeners that have been tuning in to each of the episodes. And while I'm doing thank yous, I'll also say thank you to all those people who have either written to me, messaged me on Instagram, or even stopped me in the street to talk about the episodes that I've done in the past. It's always great to hear from you. And if you'd like to get in touch, then please do. It is at Behind the Bio Podcast on Instagram. And if you prefer email, then Ashley underscore at Outlook.com. 
Once again, thanks a lot to the Coordinate guys for making this possible, and I hope I can catch you at the next episode of Behind the Bio.